Welcome to episode 542 with my guests Jillian G. I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads, from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. Uh, it's not a doctor's office. I'm not a therapist. It's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. The website for this show is metalpod.com. Go check out the forum. I always forget to mention uh, there's a forum there with a ton of threads on a huge variety of subjects. There are surveys that you can take at the website. Those are a big part of this show, about a dozen different surveys. And... Um, I've been doing this show for 10 years, and I still find the surveys just endlessly, endlessly fascinating. Uh, a note about the interview today with Jillian. This was recorded a while ago, several years ago, and I was still married. So when I reference my wife, uh, yeah, you're not going nuts, the uh, people have, who've been listening for a while. One of our sponsors, as always, is BetterHelp. Dot com online therapy. If you have never tried online therapy, what are you waiting for? From the comfort of your own home, you can talk about what a dick people were in grade school. From the comfort of your own home, you can talk about your dad's alcoholism. From the comfort of your own home, you can cry and suck your thumb. Maybe everybody doesn't do that. Maybe that's just me. Anyway, if you've never tried it, go to betterhelp.com. That's H-E-L-P, uh, betterhelp.com slash mental. Make sure you include the slash mental part so they know you came from this podcast. Then just fill out a questionnaire. And if they have a counselor that they think is a good fit for you, they'll match you up with one. And you can experience a free week of counseling to see if it's a good fit for you. And you need to be over 18. Otherwise, they will direct you to teencounseling.com. This is from the Loves survey, and this is filled out by a person who calls themselves trying to like more things than just stuffed animals. And they write, I love learning how to golf with my friends, going up to the mesa near my house and struggling to even hit a ball. I love randomly running with my dogs when we're on a walk, not caring if a car sees me sprint for 30 seconds, only to keep walking after I love dancing or singing out loud while I'm on a walk. Does anyone really care that I'm enjoying myself? I love how my boyfriend pulls me into his chest at night after I tell him I had a nightmare. He's always so warm and comforting. I love this podcast. I love that I've been listening since I was 16 and consider Paul a friend. Thanks for going through life with me. Give Gracie some love from me as well. I will, I will be sure to do that. And that's always so nice to, uh, to read that. And then my favorite one of, uh, of their loves. I love when my grandma asks if we're in Vietnam and is completely unfazed when I tell her we're actually in Colorado. She's never been to Vietnam. I just wanted to get the fuck away from my life. You know, I couldn't have felt any lure. Grief, guilt, shame. Why wasn't I born a girl? There's a switch that gets flipped in my head. I'm supposed to be a girl. I experience being treated like an animal. How can a just God... I have a vomit fetish. ...let humans do this to each other? Help! 
I fucking flew over the cuckoo's nest. My wife's losing it. I thought it was all about me. I don't know what to do. I would have committed suicide if I could have watched my funeral. A Polaroid I found of my mother um, naked in a dentist chair. And my body doesn't quite... I think I did eight days in L.A. County Jail. ...fit how I see myself. What was it all for? Why are my friends dead? Everything that I did, there's a comfort in the scars for me, was in service of OCD. You've already had all the paper cuts. Step away from the paper. It's really hard to see the picture when you're inside the frame. You know, it takes a larger view to see your life. Just actually have somebody listen to you. Yeah. And I got up and got my tooth and left. (laughs) (laughs) I'm here with Jillian G, who uh, is... She's a graphic designer. Uh, She's also a uh, comic book artist. Is that what you would call it? Uh, Graphic novelist. Yeah. But you write your own stuff, too. You don't just illustrate it. That's right. While it's beautifully illustrated, what I find... The most charming about it is the detail of the observation of your characters. It's called jerk-faced a-hole, <laughs> and the uh, the main character is a super unpopular high school girl who is full of anxiety and self-loathing, and I'm sure nobody can relate to that. Um, I just, uh, I was like... As I was looking through it, uh, I was, I was like, "We have to record. We have to record something." And so, so here we are. Woo! We did it. Spill your guts. Okay, I'm ready. What should I spill about? I don't know. Where, where do you think would be a good place <laughs> to start? Um, it's a good question. I, I guess with jerk face, it's jerk face a hole, not jerk faced a hole. Oh, jerk for face. The record. Okay. Yeah, jerk face. But I mean. Same difference, but if you're looking it up on the internet. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's... I'm not sure where to start. Um, well, people have asked me if it's autobiographical, and it's not. It's... It's but informed it's sure. by something that's very personal. 100%. It's very informed by my own experiences growing up. But, like, I had a pretty good childhood and a pretty... Like, I had a couple of bad years in high school. I think everybody had a couple of bad mm-hmm. years, but I really kind of found my footing and found some good friends in the end with high school. So for me, it wasn't quite as bleak, and I wasn't as much of uh, a, re- a rebel as I think jerk faces. I think it, it's kind of in that way a bit of a vehicle to write some of the things that I kind of wish I could have said to people or would have said to authority figures in my life, but I've never been one. I'm really afraid of conflict. So <laughs> it's not that's not conducive to standing up to people. It's it, it it it's not and art is such a great way to confront people. It's so um I remember early on doing stand up um there there was a newspaper article about up and coming comedians and and I happened to be one of them and somebody and they and they had blurbs what their peers were saying about them because it was comics comics. That's cruel. That's and, a grueling thing to do. Uh, no, it was a favorable thing that other comics. Still, don't yeah. you think that gets in your head? Um, well, the, one of the things they said about me was confronts the hell out of, an, out of an audience. And I thought, wow, that is the exact opposite <laughs> of how I am in real life. So you're you're character uh that makes perfect sense to me that this was in, in many ways it's like being able to jump into a time machine and go back and go here's what i wanted to say yeah absolutely 
it's it's awkward too. I mean, there's that aspect as well with making something that you have to put it out in the world and people get to look at it. I'm a little uncomfortable with the idea of success, which is a, a kind of a ridiculous thing to admit, but uh, like I'm afraid of of jerkface getting popular and I want it to be popular. You know, like you give birth to this baby thing and then just like hope that it never meets anybody that hurts it and by it I mean me because you know, if somebody if I hear negative feedback, I think that can be really devastating. It can be. And Ugh. and you have to find a way to deal with it. Sometimes I'll go in the forums and see what people are saying and most of the time it's good, but sometimes they'll say something that um really uh, really hurts and uh especially if i know there's truth in it and most oh. of the time there is some truth to it sometimes it's somebody filtering it through their own issue but um you get i think it it maybe gets easier um but maybe not i don't i don't know <laughs> is control a big issue for you because it sounds to me like uh, you're afraid to let go of control absolutely yeah for sure i'm afraid to let go of control i'm also afraid to um, take credit good or bad, you know, like it's that whole, like take the credit, like risk the risk. Oh, that's, you know, that famous maxim that everybody Be says. Become in danger of becoming full of yourself well, or what? No, like I, I want the credit and the recognition, but I have a hard time dealing with the potential of, you know, any sort of negative feedback. So if you start to believe that people say that you're doing a great thing you're also going to have to believe people that say you're a hack and exactly all the exactly. other all the other bullshit totally um well what was where do you think the i mean everybody obviously wants some type of control in their life where where are your control issues where do, where do they spring from do you think hmm. or do you just want to tell us what childhood and adolescence was like or <laughs> seminal moments you want to just go through a little slideshow of some some seminal moments from your life? Sure, yeah. I mean... Um, they don't uh, have to be big. Sometimes yeah. it's just things oh yeah, that kind of etched. Tiny. Sometimes it's strange how the most innocuous thing will be burned into our memory. Oh my goodness, so true. So, so true. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's funny. I, I haven't... I have a really good relationship with my mom, and she is just generally supportive, but I haven't shown her the comic yet. And... I was kind of wondering why that was and I think that I think that she might be hurt by it because in the comic the main character has been abandoned by her mother and you know like in in a really literal way where the mother's just kind of taken off and only sort of checks in and she's forced to live with this aunt and uncle that are really kind of alien to her and that she doesn't really get along with and that don't like see her when I was in high school, um, I was raised predominantly by my mom, who's a single mother mostly. Like, my parents divorced when I was pretty young. And um, when I was in grade 11, I'd finally just kind of found my footing in high school and had some really good friends. And my mom essentially remarried my stepdad, who's a good man. Um, and then she was going to move to another city. And they offered me the option of either moving with them and, like, kind of breaking up my, like, idyllic high school situation or staying behind and living with friends of the family, which is what I ended up choosing. So there's – Jerkface isn't autobiographical, but there's all these parallels that it was really easy to draw from, like living in a stranger's home and, like, what was that like? And I had a great experience with it all in all. But it was so formative to, like, arguably leave home before I was ready. Because I was a really, like, runty, underdeveloped teenager. Like, at at what you, 16... What do you mean when you say runty? 
Um, like really like a super duper late bloomer. So when I was 15, I maybe looked 11 mm-hmm. and like it's, uh, that's great now that I'm older and then it's like, Oh, you look so young, but it, it was terrible in high school. I was, you I know, was, I was the same way and it was <sighs> fucking miserable. Even worse miserable. for, I think even worse for boys because you want to, um, you don't want to look weak. Yeah. You know, I mean, women certainly don't want to look weak, but uh, I don't think as much of their ego is wrapped up in not looking weak. Well, but I mean, I think a woman's ego is a lot with the way the world is wrapped up in whether or not she can be sexualized or not. And the younger you look, the more ignored you are. Like, I was just not seen. I was completely invisible in high school. Like, I, I didn't get bullied because I wasn't even there. Like... I, I thought I felt so conspicuous so much at the time for not fitting in, but it was just the perfect degree of childlike. I was everybody's little sister, therefore easily ignored. And that was okay because I still had kind of that youthful, well, I was going to say I had youthful confidence, but perhaps that's complete bullshit. But I finally found a bunch of awesome, awesome girlfriends in high school that weren't really invested in dating and were kind of nerdy and schoolish, but like really kind of fly under the radar people and not very invested in any scenes and that worked perfect for me like we just like laughed and goofed around and had really childlike fun and then I really found my niche and they were not interested in boys and dating so it was so easy to just exist in high school which I really kind of think that should be the way it should be but I mean you've got a mix of people you have to go with the majority I don't know it sounds like it was pretty safe like it was a pretty (laughs) safe experience for you it was pretty okay yeah. That's great. Yeah, it was lucky. I mean, the first two years were kind of brutal, just wandering around and like trying to find a physical space to be in high school is so hard. It's so hard. Oh, like they have common areas or cafeterias, but like that's a battleground. And anybody who says it isn't hasn't gone to high school. Like it's a dark place. It is. My high school, uh, we had 1,300 kids in my freshman class. And I went from being a popular kid at a Catholic grade school with a class of 40 and feeling completely Mm. a part of to being undersized, looking five years younger than I was and having no friends in this public high school. And it was terrifying. God, it was a nightmare. I remember the first day of grade nine because in Saskatchewan, that's where it breaks. There was no junior high. Where in Saskatchewan? Saskatoon. Okay. Yeah. It's an awesome city, actually. I have nothing bad to say about Saskatoon. Is that Saskatoon. the Saskatoon Blades? Yes, it is the Saskatoon Blades. I know my Blades. juniors. <laughs> Your junior hockey leagues. Yeah, it's. Uh, I wasn't really into sports, but you couldn't not know who the Blades were in Saskatoon. That's not yeah. an option. They came to everybody's school. Any guys that made the pros from, from that that you remember? Were you a hockey fan? No, not really. My okay. best friend was uh, dated a hockey guy, but he never did the Blades, I don't think. Uh, he did oh god he did the blazers if you know the blazers i think that's like junior triple a xl i don't know the words (laughs) i'm not very sporty it's major junior then junior a junior b and then uh and then give it up oh and then give it up then go home now Uh, you've aged out of it i i corresponded once with a listener uh who mentioned that she was from um sarnia which is home of the Sarnia Sting. And, mm-hmm. you know, that's what I wrote. And she said, oh, yes. Uh, and I said, Steven Stamkos, uh, I think, played for the Sarnia Sting. And she said, yeah, he ate at the uh, cafeteria that uh, they shared with my high school. And uh, I, I think is an idiot, and he chews with his mouth open. <laughs> <laughs> and I went, I went, it's so interesting how somebody 
will view somebody, somebody who's not interested in hockey will look at somebody, because I'd be like, oh, man, he's in the same room. I can't wait to go. Even though the guy's a third of my age, you know, it would, uh, I would you be a little, little starstruck. Yeah, I'd be a total fanboy. For but, sure. But uh, somebody who doesn't care about that is like, ugh, that fucking mouth breather. Yeah. Well, my me and my best friend used to go and watch her boyfriend's hockey games, like, because what do you do in Saskatoon in the winter on the weekend? And we didn't drink. Like, I never drank or did anything until it was legal to do so. I'm a bit of a rule follower, like, just by nature. I'm a little mm-hmm. afraid of consequences. But uh, we'd go to these hockey games, and we found out that if you went into the women's washroom, like, after the game, and you walk to the end, and you go into the wheelchair stall and put your ear to the wall, you could hear every word of what was happening in the change room. So we'd go in there and listen to these guys being so gross and talking about who's got diarrhea and who has a boner and just like weird sports dude stuff. And we just cry with laughter. And we kept it all a secret for him from him for years so that really? he wouldn't know. It was great. Did he ever tell, did he ever s- re- reveal details of his relationship with her? No, he never did. But it was like too bro-y. I, I think that they weren't talking yeah. about that stuff. It was real like towel whipping, uh, like homoerotic, you know, it's- just so, especially when you're in your your teens, it's so homoerotic. Everybody was talking about their dicks. And we were just like, do boys do this? We never knew. It was such a window into a weird world. Yeah, yeah. It, not, you know, we, we didn't do it in a way that was like, um, it was like, we're, we're trying so hard to show that it's not, that we're not, that guy yeah but by do my wife would always say because comics are the same way you get around comics and it's 30 seconds until somebody's talking about butt fucking somebody else and my wife would always say why don't you guys just all fuck each other and get it over with <laughs> yeah and that just always made me laugh yeah it's it's a weird a weird space they don't watch porn together and stuff too which they i was do? just like yeah I've they never, did I've never, isn't that weird that's not true once i did with um a, but this was when vcrs were new and it was hard to you know get a hold of one but uh that's nothing i've ever wanted to do is no. watch porn with a group of people I, I can't imagine that just sounds like a nightmare to me and like just a group of it's just dudes. awkward yeah. yeah it's very weird I think the only thing that that it would be, I think the the default then would be picking apart what was happening, you know, because that's what people tend to do when they get nervous is to criticize and, you know. Well, and I mean, God forbid, like, you're not going to be like, wow, this is so hot right now. Right. Uh, It's just such an, it just seems so funny and so strange. Yeah. But anyway, sports. Sports. Um, oh, I know. I was talking about um, my first day of school in Saskatoon. Yeah. This um, was an example, going back to being super runty. Um, I was so scared to go to high school because it was K to 8, all in one school. And then in grade 9, moved to this other high school where, you know, you're just in with the big kids suddenly. And I remember my mom dropping me off in the car. And I had to sit in the car to try and control myself from not crying because I was just like just vibrating with anxiety and not wanting to go in there and just wanting to go like just drive me back to elementary school. I'll do grade eight again. That's fine. (laughs) Just don't leave me here. And did you have any friends, anybody that you could connect with that you knew from the previous school? Sort of. 
Um, I did have some friends, but grade eight was weird for me too. Like the kind of rift between me and my peer group started in grade eight where I stayed so young and they all got older. And oh my then, God, that is so much like my story. Yeah. <laughs> keep, keep going. I don't want to bog it down. But yeah. So in grade eight, I was kind of just like a well-liked random. Like I wasn't, and I really thrive with a, gl- a group of close friends. Yeah. I, I like to have, I know it's kind of shitty to have one friend be your best friend, but I need that anchor point. And then if I've got one person who's kind of like a rock for me, I can have other friends that are varying degrees of intensity or that you get mm. different things from. And by the time I was in grade eight, by the end of grade eight, I didn't have a best friend. I'd grown out of my Nobody other best friend. Nobody that knew you. Nobody no. that saw you. Yeah. Or or that it was just too much. Like I had like a childhood best friend, but she got really religious, weirdly, around like grade six, grade seven, and we kind of grew apart. And everybody was friendly with me. Nobody picked on me, but I just didn't fit in anywhere. It was a bit of like a loose, like a, a single sock in the dryer. And... In high school, I was supposed to meet one of my friends at the front to go in together, just so we'd be a united front. But she wasn't afraid, and I was, and she didn't meet me when she said she would, so I just had to go in oh alone anyway. God. You must have felt so abandoned. Oh, it was an, I was furious because I was so scared. I was just terrified. And I didn't know where the office was. Like, I didn't do a few basic things that I later learned how to do, like recon. Go to the high school when nobody's there. Figure out where all your classes are so that you're not just like, you know, like. I would have never thought to do that. Never in a million years. In university, I did it. But by the time university came around, I was like, yes, I'm so ready for this. University is my place. Like, I'm going to fit in here like a boss. And you've had the experience of being afraid in high school and then realizing after a little while it begins to feel not so terrifying. Yeah, you so you're routine. like, oh, okay, college is kind of be the same thing. And this yeah. is, I'm just a freshman again. Totally. But the first time it happens in high school, oh it's God. it's terrifying. Well, in university too, it was like, the high school mentality wasn't there anymore. It's not like this group of people that follow you around. It's all these different little groups and your classes all have different people in them. And if there's a bully in one, you don't have your next 10 classes with them, you know? And you don't have to duke it out in one cafeteria. And the bullying is so much less intense in oh, college. I didn't experience any. I thought yeah. that university was just like a real beautiful utopia of actual like learning and you could take classes you were interested in and I've always been kind of a decent student so it's fine and in college it's a lot of people I think begin to reject conformity and say you know I'm tired of what I've been spoon-fed my whole life I'm gonna I'm gonna start listening to things and doing things that would have pissed off the teenage me yep um, well, and I had my group of friends then. Like by that time, I had like seven girlfriends that we were really close with, and everybody went to university. We all were kind of on a similar track for a long time. So we'd all meet for lunch, and we all felt like grown ups. It was that exciting early time. God, yeah, I loved university. That was a, a real rush. One of my favorite things to do at college would be go get a really good, strong cup of coffee and go study with your friends yeah, and you'd uh, be like you know you'd take you'd take a little break you'd fuck around you'd play pranks with each other i had these two friends one who could fart at will wow. and we would uh you know libraries are always echoey and he would get bored after 45 <laughs> minutes and so you'd be you'd be studying and you'd just hear from 200 yards away just a squealing fart <laughs> and it would even to this day, like, 
uh, an inappropriate fart still fucking makes me laugh. That's it's, that's my mom's wheelhouse of humor. Is, is it fart jokes? It's her favorite thing in the whole wide world. I, I wish I could say that it doesn't. A silent fart doesn't make me laugh. But <laughs> um, so you're at university. You're you're feeling a. a a part of where where did the, when did the issues start and what what are the issues because clearly there's some type of pain of of uh, feeling like an outsider in your thing was it mostly just from the year what was that noise I have no idea something from the hallway it sounded like somebody squeaking a balloon yeah anyway uh, pain um, we we're talking about pain yeah what was it those those years that you felt physically you know, let down by your not growing like the other kids and having that, what, what are, what are the issues and, and when did they really start? Uh, I think, Cause, I mean, I've always had, oh, sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, cause so far we don't have an <laughs> <Pretty> episode. good. <laughs> yeah. So you really enjoyed your life. That's great. Juicy morsels here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, uh, I had a, a more contentious relationship with my dad than with my mom. She's going she's to come up with a suicide attempt that never oh, happened yeah, right now. Yeah, of course. I'm just going to mm. make up something. I'm, I'm trying to jump off the balcony right <laughs> now. Um, no. Um, so my parents divorced when I was pretty young. And my dad, um, if, if anybody, I mean, he's passed away, but he, if he was alive, if you'd meet him, he's a really nice guy. But emotionally just not available which is something i was aware of from a really 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 young age because i had such a tuned in relationship with my mom and i still do that's not that tenses are weird when you talk about parents that died it's so strange but um your mom's no, no longer my around. mom is alive my dad is not oh, okay um but yeah i still have a great relationship with my mom but even as a kid we were really tuned into each other not in like a creepy gilmore girls were best friends way but like I feel like she really sees me and I really see her, I think, at least at some level. Like we're That's nice. It's a fluke, you know? You're born into this family and just sometimes it works out and sometimes it doesn't. But um because I was raised with this single mother and I'm an only child, it was always just the two of us. We kinda got to carve out our own way. And then when I'd spend time with my dad, the contrast of his interest in me was just, it was like night and day. Um, and so like, did you know it was him and not a reflection of how interesting you were? I think I did. I think I did because I'd had all these confidence boosters from my mom. Like, I got to give her a lot of credit in the way that she raised me because like, I was a really sickly kid. I think part of the whole runty growing up was like actual birth defects and developmental issues. Like what? Um, like I actually have... A weird I hand. I have nine fingers. Yeah, kind of. Uh -huh. I mean, I kind of have five fingers on one hand. There's uh -huh. sort of a weird thumb. But I mean, calling it a disability, I Is think Is it just the one hand? These hands really... The other hand's really small, uh -huh. uh, but big big thumbs, short fingers. Uh -huh. But I actually think that gives me more control in drawing, so it's always been a boon. Oh, that's cool. And and your left, your left hand, mm -hmm. the... Uh, there's like it's missing bones or something, so it's like the thumb, it's the got kind of a long palm, and then the thumb is kind of more finger-like and not as dexterous as like a, a normal. Yeah, hand. it does. It looks like yeah. instead of four fingers and a thumb, it looks like uh, five fingers. Yeah, I used to get like air quotes teased as a kid. Um, this boy who had a crush on me called it the monkey paw, and I was like, you know what? That's good. It does look like a monkey paw. Like, I've never been self-conscious about it because my mom, and I mean my dad, I'm sure as well, but my mom to a great extent was just like, this makes you special. It's nothing that's weird. You don't have to worry about it. And I was like, cool, great. 
here we go. Wow. So yeah, like incredible favors done to me in my upbringing. But um, I don't know how I segued into that. But my dad, whenever we'd hang out, like he just would sleep. Like I think that he was an undiagnosed huge depressive. Like everybody in his family really hints darkly at a horrifying childhood, but no one's explicit about it. I'm sure he got beat by his dad. I think that my aunts were like molested by the by the grandpa. And just like an atmosphere of intense religiosity. So there's that whole like fear of actual God, hellfire, damnation, blah, blah, blah. And then plus you have this horrible, cruel patriarch, but also this really musical family. My family on, especially on my dad's side is incredibly musical. So like they're all like just talented opera singers. Really? Yeah. Yeah. My dad had an incredible singing voice and that's where I really felt connected to him. Like when he would sing, it was just this incredibly pure thing. And he just has this soaring, gorgeous, gorgeous voice, but he never did anything with it. He worked in a tire shop until he had to retire from having a heart attack in his forties and like tried to go back, was just too depressed and just always was kind of this person who had all this talent just raw, natural talent. And I mean, he trained too, but like, it was there. Did he is it self-medicate with anything? Not that I'm aware anything? of. Not that I'm sleep. aware of. Sleep. Yeah. Sleep. Sleeping, Sleeping all the time. Yeah. He watched a lot of car racing. He liked to go for drives. Like, we had nice times. There was no abuse. It was just neglect. In And like, comparative neglect. Other people, other kids would be happy to be so benignly ignored by their parents. But I had this weird stark comparison of this incredibly connected relationship. You know, it's it, one of the things I've learned doing this podcast is having a parent who was indifferent can be as traumatizing as a parent who was abusive. You know, especially if you're a sensitive kid, if your expectations are high. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I really encourage people who don't have, who weren't beat or fucked or, you know, whatever. Yeah, whatever. Uh, but feel broken or empty or something in them that's not wrong to stop blaming yourself and start processing those those feelings. Yeah. Start talking to somebody about it because it's about getting that pain out, not about where it qualifies on the oh. on the scale of how people, you know. How people treat each other terribly yeah. in the world. Yeah. Um, yeah. So have you, have you found that you are, are you straight? Yeah. Are you, do you find yourself drawn to guys that are unavailable or running hmm. from them? That's a good question. I mean, I think that I, hmm, in the past, like my first big boyfriend was very like struggled very openly with depression and I just thought he seemed so interesting and intellectual and he wanted to like talk about the issues you know things that you think are so hot topic when you're like 21 and in university like oh I've never heard about world issues before let's get into it apartheid mm -hmm. Ooh. like and even to the point like I shake my head now um but at the time he was kind of into like arguably men's rights issues, which like the men's rights activist movement is just like one of the darkest places in the world, I think. I'm pro, so pro men expressing their feelings and having an avenue to be emotional, but so much of that men's rights stuff is just anti-woman couched in pro-man. Yeah. And it's like, how can we find 
a middle ground where men can be supported with uh, ad, not yeah. at the expense of women. I would love to be introduced to a pocket of the men's movement that isn't the darkest shit you've ever seen. Dark, and, dark. and and throwing the word uh, equality uh, out there when it when it comes to men <coughs> is is uh, that's just stupid. It is. There are, there are things that. For instance, one of the things that I feel very passionate about that I'm getting invited to speak about is healing from sexual trauma. Mm -hmm. And one of the issues that I, I talk about that is very valid and that I can easily get very angry about is the idea that uh, men can't be victims uh, oh, yeah. when the perpetrator is female. Yeah. Um but that doesn't that has nothing to do with the female population it's how they view men's sexuality totally you know n nobody in my opinion there doesn't you you don't have to take something away from the female population to help the men you know what no. I mean? It's not a win-lose. No, it, I don't think it needs to be. I, I do think that, I think it's a sore subject for a lot of women, though, because it's like um, so often when like an issue, for instance, of sexual abuse becomes a men's issue, it gets a whole bunch more like uh, people think it's more real or it gets more press or people think it's more legitimate because it's just a given with women. They're like, well, obviously you've been sexually abused because that's just you're a sexual object and that's you probably asked for it and yada 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 and it's been an issue for years and years that people have tried to address and when it gets more airtime when men bring it up i think that gets the back of a lot of women up understandably but it's like the idea needs to be that we're all in it together yes and i think that, that there is a quality well in, <laughs> let's in, cross our fingers that, on that it, i think that feminism wants to encompass everything like that feminism is about equality for men and women, but I can see where men are not necessarily yeah. interested in calling themselves feminists, but I think that that's a misnomer and it's just a lack of education about it. It It, it is, and I feel the same way about, um, uh, you know, when people are ra raising awareness about genocide, it's, you know, it sprang out of the, the Holocaust, but it always, it warms my heart when I see um, people um, who initially focused on the, the Jewish Holocaust that are now working their ass off to raise awareness about what happened in Rwanda and Darfur and, and other places. And I'm yeah. like, that that's somebody that's walking the fucking walk. And even though it pisses me off sometimes, I, I click on almost any story where there is, um, where a boy uh, has been ab abused by a, a a woman, and then I, I read the story, and then I read the comments, and it's usually, you know, the sexy Ugh, teacher and the 14-year-old boy. Comments. And it makes me so angry, but I feel like I have to, I feel like I have to, because this is, this is uh, you know, an, an, an issue for me, and it's something I feel like the podcast is in a, a good position to be able to have this be a platform. 90% of the people that have dickish comments on there are guys and 90% of the supportive comments are women and it warms my heart and it pisses me off at the yeah. same time. I'm so, I'm so glad. And it makes sense that women would get it because more women have experienced that. They know yeah. what it's like to be objectified and most guys don't realize that you can be objectified because a lot of it is, it wasn't, 
wasn't done in a way that was uh, necessarily overt. Yeah, or the bro culture dictates that, you know, if they got to have sex with a, a teacher when they were 15, that they get to high five each other, like that you've had some sort of success and somehow the power dynamic doesn't apply there. It's like, no, it still does, dude. You were maybe too young and she was maybe out of her brain for whatever reason. And when you read the surveys on the website or you talk to these guys, they don't realize the impact of what happened to them until they're around the age of their uh, abuser. And then all of the stuff begins oh, to make sense. The performance anxiety, the feelings of worthlessness, hmm. the difficulty having intimacy, the depression, the sleeping a lot, the suicidal thoughts. It's it's textbook what I read in... in um, survey after survey from these guys it's almost like if you tell me what had happened i could say here's the next six issues that this guy is going to have and it's <laughs> yeah it's textbook or yeah. they're stuck in um uh sex addiction and they can't Ugh. get out of it because they're still numbing themselves right but listen i got i got was there something no, else you wanted to say no well i was gonna say to tie it all in um this the first guy that I dated, I think that he was really drawn to the men's rights thing because I think he had a really unhealthy relationship with his mom. And makes perfect sense. Yeah, exactly. And then suddenly you're trying to find some way to assert yourself and you feel dominated by this female force and then suddenly there's this misogynistic thread that starts to run through your life because you've got one figure who betrayed you in whatever way. I don't know that his relationship with who, her was sexual, but she was a nightmare and out to lunch. And who, and who you're afraid to confront. Exactly, exactly. And who in many cases, and I think in this case, it wouldn't have been useful or safe for him to confront her. Like she was in La La Land. She was like an alien where like people would be having natural conversation and she'd stop the conversation to like drop some sort of like Reader's Digest Bon Mot that she'd read. And it was like she would read a manual about how to act like a human being in as an alien. Oh, wow. It was it was nutso bananas. And I mean, all things considered, he wasn't a terrible boyfriend to me, but he was really looking for me to save him. And I was really looking to save him at the time. I was just like, yes, I'm just going to be the sensitive, emotionally connected guardian angel. I'm going to just, I'm going to rock your life. And then it's like, oh, this depression is like a thing. And I don't know, maybe I don't even know that much about it. And I'm just kind of generally emotionally tuned in or i think i am and and you can never be enough oh, when when never. one person is looking oh. for another person to fill them <laughs> yeah. there's the illusion that you can you know that that yeah. you're going to be enough and the switch is going to flip and Big everything time. is going to spin down and it's going to be okay and by the end of it i'm like he hated my guts and you were and exhausted he, probably. yeah and he didn't want to break up i had to break up with him and he was like this is a surprise i'm like are you joking right now wow. you can't stand me you're like he was so resentful of everything and wanted me to make new choices for the both of us so that he could then resent those ones and i was just like this has got to stop since then i don't know like in response to like do i date unavailable emotionally unavailable men i'm in a good one right now i think my current partner i've been with for quite a while and he's pretty great and pretty willing to go there with me like you know like i've in the last couple of years actually you're asking like oh when did your life ever get shitty the last couple of years have been incredibly rough i really started to deal with like some what feels to me like kind of major anxiety and in the winter months, it really spiraled into depression because I work mostly from home, not going out at all. And you're just freelance, like, oh, right? Yeah. So I'm Which... just able to sit in it and get poor and feel weird and 
for me, it really manifests in externals, like existential things, like like global warming, climate change. It's just enough to really set me off. I can't even read articles about it anymore. You swing for the fence, huh? You oh know, yeah, big time. You're gonna you're gonna get depressed. <laughs> you're gonna uh, you're gonna. I'm gonna pick something unfixable and hopeless. Exactly. Um, and I'm really gonna let the state of the world just like filter into my every thing. Yeah, it's great. I get extremely pissed off when I hear uh, global warming deniers, especially when they're politicians. It's a, it's a rage that I really only feel with people that say, uh, you know, boys can't be abused. Yeah. It's, it's, it's so yeah. – I think what makes me so angry is what do you have to lose by – saying, okay, this is a thing. Money. Money what? is the thing. Yeah? I mean, yeah, absolutely. It's so... I, I mean, I can't... I don't want to get into it too much because it goes into the, like, circular, like, well, and this is the thing and, like, the fights that I have in my head with imaginary people. Like, you know, if I was a politician, I'd get up and I'd give this speech. And if I was able to talk to Stephen Harper, that's our prime minister, who's mm. a nightmare, um, if I was able to talk to him, I'd say this and this and this. All that stuff is true. All that stuff is real. But it's not addressing the feelings, which is I just get terrified. I'm terrified of there being a significant change in the world that's happening. Like the climate stuff's happening. And I'm afraid of losing something. Like I think it goes back to like an innate fear of missing out. Because I really have always been afraid of like, oh, is there a better party around the corner? Mm -hmm. Oh, the one day I'm sick from school. And actually this happened. The one day I was sick from school in grade eight is the day when they just spontaneously decided to have like a weird play day and everybody went into the gym and they all got these mats out and had like some sort of crazy wrestling match and like everybody got ice cream and it was the funnest day of the year and everyone in class talked about it and it was the day I was sick. That's exactly my fear and it manifested perfectly that I just want in on magical moments and if I miss them, I'm heartbroken. It's happened so many times. In in high school as well, always chasing recognition. I think like I really just want to get credit in. for and, things that I do. And, and it sounds like fitting in as well, like to experience it with yeah with people and be a part of a community. Yes. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I, I think I, it's I, genetic in us to to it want to must be. I mean, it's survivalist. Like you want to find a group of people who want the same thing and then move with them, so you all get it together. Like it's logical, but. In high school, I did a bunch of drawing that was in the, like, like there was a poetry anthology that came out every year. And one of the teachers I admire the most came into my English class to specifically compliment the piece that I did on the day I was sick. <laughs> Looking for recognition, homesick on the day you get it. Well, you know, clearly you found out. Well, obviously, and I memorized that. Like, I know that that happened because I think about it too much. Like, it's, oh, got to chase that recognition. Like, and it's that weird thing of wanting to be seen and wanting to hide at the same time. Like I, I like the fear of success or like, do I have to be accountable for the things I create? I do if I want recognition for them. Before you Ugh. came here, literally what I was doing was telling my wife how much being on the road brings up my fear of being invisible. Oh God. And it's, it gets so triggered by hotel rooms. I was just going to say this hotel is way too big. I, I felt invisible riding the elevator up here. I was just like, what is this place? There's three different color coded yeah. elevator banks. 
dude, do yeah. Airbnb. You can be in somebody's comfortable, beautiful I home. Should. Do I should. Well, it was booked by the by the festival. Oh, I see. But you know, for me, it was even you know being at Starbucks on my way back from from the taping on my way here, and everybody had a friend that they were talking to, and I felt this surge of like, not panic, but but like. Like I was disappearing, mm-hmm. like I didn't matter, and I, I know it's probably all tied into childhood shit, and it it helped to talk to to my wife, and but I've never I've never wanted to do that. I've never been able to name that that's what it is. But mm-hmm. I think a lot of people feel invisible and also want to be left alone. Yep. It's the weirdest thing because sometimes I really revel in that kind of invisibility and going to a generic place like a Starbucks because all Starbucks like are just portals into the same Starbucks that's in hell. And I love Starbucks, but it's the same place everywhere. And then you're like, I'm just a cog here. No one can see me. I can think about whatever I want. And then you go and do your thing and you feel perfectly, at least for me, I feel perfectly comfortable spending hours in a Starbucks. I would not feel comfortable doing that in a locally owned thing where like a human being instead of a Starbucks robot's behind the counter and they see me spending too much time there like that pushes anxiety buttons for me i'm the exact opposite i love that there's the place that i go into i know all of the baristas i know all of the clients and i also like to be left alone i like to say hi how are you good to see you but then i put my work and it's just comforting Hmm. knowing that there are people around me should i decide to reach out which is incredibly annoying and control freakish but (laughs) but um that's interesting that you you love the the pure invisibility. Yeah, I definitely do. And yet do. you want recognition. It's both. It's both. I, I get really uncomfortable being a regular. There's an, an extent to which I like it where people are like, oh, hey, you again. But I, once pe- I, people start to recognize me, I'll enjoy that a little bit and then I'll move to a different coffee shop. What do you think you're afraid of? That they're going to want something from you? That they're going to smother you? Maybe that I'll be forced to engage when I don't want to. I'll lose my anonymity. I like to, and I do get a lot of social anxiety about like, about feeling like I belong or not. Am I overstaying my welcome? Have I been here too long? Am I getting cues from the hosts that it's time to go? I never want to be the person who overstays their welcome. So I think that that's, if I'm a regular at a local place, I mean, I've worked enough retail to know that lots of the time the staff don't like you. They're being nice for your money. So it's like, if this is a thing where I'm becoming an irritating regular, I don't want that. You don't strike me as the type of person that would be uh, that would be irritating. Yeah, but it's but. like, you know, I have the beholder. I, I sometimes, at least in the past, I feel like I'm a person that people really like or really don't like as well. So it's like, well, maybe that's one of the, the don't likers. But mm. I mean, I'm sure that's more like projected judgment because I think Sounds- I take to people or don't take to people. Now, what were we talking about before we we went off on that that mm. side note? Um, My dad. Available guys, unavailable guys. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're saying your your partner right now is a pretty available guy. Mm-hmm. Um, the anxiety around the the work. Um, yeah. Talk about talk about that. The insecurity. The yeah. do you get panic attacks? No, I'm gonna say no. Although I've had a few instances like i can i think maybe only two singular instances where uh, like i had a bit of a breakdown about doing work where i had a project that came to me and usually of course the projects that seem a little bit prestigious or that pay a little bit more are the panic inducing ones i mean air quotes on panic but where i've just been like well i'm an imposter 
the gig is like the jig is up. Everyone sees I'm a complete faker and this is bullshit and I can't finish it. And I'm like, well, I know I have to finish it. I've never not made a deadline. I'm going to do it. I'm not going to send some sort of shitty email to the client being like, I'm not good enough for your thing that you've placed your faith in. And after I fought for it and that's kind of where it's been. And it's sometimes dissolved in crying and just not being able to do it for a day. You finish it though. I finished it. I always finish it. But that's where my my partner's been really great but there's was, a, there's anguish in, oh, in finishing it big time big time what do you say to your partner and what does he say to you um he's really understanding with that stuff he's not um you saying i'm a piece of shit and he says get over it <laughs> yeah yeah and he just smacks me and that's not even really funny he would never hit me i am not abused um but he he's pretty good at listening and i mean i know that he's my like that he likes me like he obviously loves me but i also know that he likes me and that he's like a fan of me and so it can be nice just to touch base with somebody and see yourself in their eyes a little bit and that can be kind of grounding and i also feel comfortable which is pretty special like just being a hot mess around him and just being really upset and sad and like feeling like garbage because i i think that I definitely have a lot more anxiety and insecurity than I project to people. I think the average, like a cross section of people who know me wouldn't have a clue that I deal with anxiety at let, all. Let us, let us in on that. Paint a, paint a picture for us with a, a story or a snapshot if you, if you can to, to illustrate that. Of anxiety. Of anxiety, uh, the the low self-esteem, the feeling like a fraud. I mean, you kind of alluded to it with the with the project, but uh, more so the being the hot mess. What 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 are the thoughts and feelings in your in your body in those moments? How do, how are they expressed? If they are, um, is there an arc to them? Uh, do, do you know what I'm? I think so. I'm trying to I think to, I to do. get to. Sometimes, it, you know, it could just be <laughs> in a single moment where you do yeah. something that's so irrational that you go, you hear it, and you go, "Oh, okay, I get it. Enough, enough said." Yeah, I'm, I'm looking. I'm looking for a moment like Ooh. like that. I wonder if I have a singular moment. I mean, it could. You could just describe what it is you're yeah. thinking and feeling. Uh, I have. I've been. Okay, backing it up, like trying to start seven thoughts at once. Um, I saw a therapist. I've seen a lot of therapists for a lot of years, Um, like not necessarily more than one at once. But, you know, I I really believe in therapy. And when I started it, like maybe in my 20s, I felt like I was too late. Like I should have already got in when I was like 14 or something. I have real prodigy-itis. I've always wanted to be a prodigy. And it's been a real heartbreaker to officially age out of that and just kind of realize that like I need to do things in my own pace. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to get discovered like I sort of imagined maybe. And and even for what? I don't know. I never even knew that I, what I had was anxiety until maybe two or three years ago. And I had this therapist and she's like, oh, you're sitting there and I notice that you're constantly picking at your hands. And I'm like, what are you talking about? I constantly bite my finger skin and... I do a thing in with my mouth. Like I do a lot of tooth tapping. It's not even grinding my teeth. It's like a compulsive sort of nibbling. And it's gotten to the point now where I'm losing tooth material, where my front teeth are actually starting to visibly get shorter. And that alone, that fact can wake me up when I'm just in that drowsy state in the morning and you kind of wake up and it's kind of nice. And then 
the anxieties come flooding in. And the first thing I'll think of is like, oh, my teeth feel like I clenched in the night. And I'm like, oh my God, okay, I'm going to grind my teeth down. I'm going to grind them down until I hit the nerve and one day they're going to crack and then it's going to be the worst and I can't afford the dentist stuff. And, you know, I've been given the gift of these teeth. And I mean, this is obviously broader symbolism that filters into every aspect of my life. But I've always been lucky with my teeth. Um, I've never had braces. They're straight. They're fine. I've never had a cavity. And it was always lucky because we weren't rich growing up. So my mom couldn't have afforded braces. And there's all these things Mm. that we couldn't have done if it had been a problem. But I was lucky enough to be like given this like these perfect teeth and a perfect bite. And the dentists always pointed out perfect, perfect. And now I'm ruining it myself. And that is an especially deep shame you're you're destroying your prodigy gift yes i'm and i'm throwing away my potential which is what my dad did he had the gift of this beautiful voice he had the gift of this training that he was given at a young age he was able to go to incredible voice teachers like some of ontario's finest and sing in these like elite choirs and never did anything with it worked in a fucking tire shop for his whole life as an assistant manager lived in basement apartments yada yada and like did community opera and didn't even always get parts because he was kind of a stilted actor if i'm honest because he was not emotionally touched in his singing did it but whenever he had to like walk around and deliver lines he was so easily embarrassed by being made to look foolish and i'm so similar to that and that's very terrifying to me because i don't want to grow up i mean i'm grown now can i ask how old you are i'm 36 okay but um yeah, I don't want to like just die one day, kind of never having done anything with it. And I mean, I think that in some ways my dad made peace with his life before it was over, but I haven't yet. So I need to like get on that. There's a pressure. I think that's one of the most, I think that's one of the deepest, most existential fears, especially for people that don't have children, is that our lives will be forgettable. Because if we... If we don't have children, what are we leaving? Exactly. What are we leaving? And who sees it? Like, your kids in some way, if you have them, like, bear this testament to your life. And they record it with their eyes, and it gives them pain in the future. But nonetheless, that's a legacy, and that's a thing that you've created. And, I mean, I haven't had kids yet. And, I mean, maybe that's in my future, but I, it's really hard for me to imagine Do that Do you happening. want kids? Oh God! I, I, that's you a, just that's made a, pretty... a face. You just made a face <laughs> that I'm going to say. If you're thinking about it, don't, because that face. If your child ever has to see that face that you just made, oh. uh, it's going to be a rough road for them. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm actually really good with kids, which is why I, it's so fraught. Because I'm like, well, I should, and I always grew up thinking like, well. I'll save this stuff so that my kids can see it and so that I can tell my kids my story and blah, blah, blah. But, I mean, being a former kid, you don't always care that much about your parents' story. You're busy making your own story. So this notion that I'm going to save this archival, you know, U-Haul full of garbage that this kid's going to want to go through... They don't give a shit. The kid does they not want to look at your crap. They don't. They, they hear don't. they hear you talking enough during the day. Absolutely. And they I mean, want you to see them. Yes, exactly. And that's your job. I mean, I actually think that I could have a really rich experience being a, a, a parent, but I just don't know if I'm... I feel like I've got so many things to sort out before I could do that experience. I think they should... 
you know, like there are things you can do where you can be a race car driver for a day. Yeah. I think they should have a thing where you can be a parent for a day, but what it is is you are in charge of five little kids Ugh. traveling across country on a flight that is delayed. Oh, please. As if that's the cross-section of parenting, though. <laughs> that's so horrible. You want to experience the worst of it? I just think that... But shouldn't you, but shouldn't you do that? Yeah. Because you know the good is going to be fantastic. Yeah. I think that... I think a part of the reason I'm afraid of parenting is that... It forces you to feel so deeply. And I think yes. I'm really afraid of my world being rocked by that Irre- irreversibly, irrevocably. Like, like when I see a kid has been kidnapped, I'm like, thank God I didn't have kids because I right? don't know how anybody. The thought of my dog being lost makes me almost go into the fetal position. Yep. I yep. can't imagine. I can't imagine. No, I, I can't either. I had um, one of my best friends growing up. Her sister passed away a couple. Now it's been quite a few years, but like, like maybe six years ago, at age nineteen, like a random freak, freak thing where she just got mono and just died of it one day. Wow. And watching that family, which is a family I really grew up with, just be rocked by the absence of this person so unexpectedly, it's just like I mean, I didn't even need that as an example, but I had it, and it was just like this this thunderbolt that ripples through this family forever. Mm-hmm. forever fuck and if you have a kid that like ripple of love is forever it's this thunderbolt of being intrinsically affected forever i don't know if i can handle that I'm having a rough enough time with just like living in the world as it is to imagine bringing another person into it is just ugh. it's more than i can imagine right now talk about the you ride your bike around town you don't have a car that's right do you consider you're somebody that hovers around the poverty line or is that too dramatic? You know, it feels dramatic, but the numbers would back it up. Talk- I I definitely am not. I'm, I'm definitely in the poverty line right now. Talk about that because we haven't really talked about that on the podcast. And you're self-employed, which, you know, as I mentioned, brings its own added pressure. But we don't talk about... We don't talk about that a lot when somebody is an adult and on their own. We talked about what it was like when you came from a family that didn't have a lot. And I think I always tend to minimize it when it happened in childhood because I try to focus on emotional poverty, which yep. is so much more damning than, damaging oh, than sure. economic poverty. But economic poverty is, uh, I think, in many ways like uh, a thousand cuts where it just fucking wears on you <laughs> there's not a single trauma it's yep. just you get it's it, you know it's like a mosquito that just god damn it yeah when the fuck is this thing gonna that's really true get away from me and i mean i haven't always been below the poverty line which is why it's so much more stark you know it's i used to work at a newspaper in sales and i did very well when i was there and it was kind of mind-blowing at the time to be like, oh, I'm, I'm making a really decent wage. Like, if I kept doing this, I could live the life. You know, I could have a house in a couple of years, and I could, you know, really do that whole thing. I mean, I was living in a much smaller city at the time. It, that wouldn't be enough in Toronto. But now, I, I made the choice to move here. I went back to school, blah, blah, blah. Brings us up to today, where now I've, I've chosen to just freelance and not. I mean, I do work a really, really part time job right now, but I mean, it's a six month contract, so I just can kind of consider it gigging like everything. But it does wear away at you, not knowing for sure 
every month that you can make the rent. And the rent is so fucking expensive in Toronto. It's ridiculous. It's insane. But there's this weird paradox in the arts that if you want to be an artist of any kind, like if you want to be a stand-up or an actor you have to live or in an city. artist, you have to live in the city because that's where the opportunities are. And absolutely, I've come across opportunities here that I would never have gotten anywhere else. 100%. It's bizarre. But... It's getting harder as I get older because a lot of my friends are becoming more established. Like when I first moved here like six years ago, lots of my friends were still students. So everybody was in that same sort of poverty category. And now a lot of people are like, oh, well, we can afford to take vacations. We can afford to like just do events that cost more money that you just never do when you're a student because, you know, you're on this sustenance diet kind of thing. And it is getting really aggravating. And my partner does make more money than I do. Um, but he's not loaded either. But he's doing better than me. But even we're both still kind of in this lower middle or lower, lower. I don't know what the, the range is, but mm -hmm. it's weird. It sounds too like you just described, you know, when your friends are becoming more successful, even though you're happy for them, in many ways, you're still being left behind. You yeah. know, like, oh, God, I I didn't go to school I didn't go to school today, the day that everybody started out yeah. on their careers, <laughs> and the, yeah, and now I'm day. now I'm behind. Yeah, that's time. a that's a terrifying, terrifying feeling. Yeah, there's a feeling too when you're freelancing, and I mean, I know from just being online, like on Twitter, there's so many freelance people really exist on Twitter, at least in my following, um, and that's really reassuring because all of them just kind of feel like adult babies, like they all feel like teenagers who are never doing enough. There's never an end to the amount of work that you can do. It's like always going to school. You always can have homework, but it's self-motivated, which is even worse. You can't even write off the ability to do work on like, oh, well, that teacher's a dick, so I don't have to do his homework assignment. You're the teacher. You're the boss. You're the dick. And it never, that voice in your head never stops talking. Never. It's like, w w what are you sitting around for? Yeah. And it's so hard to listen to the voice that says, you've worked hard, take the day off. Yeah. Because even if you do, that voice is like, Ugh, life is passing you by, man. Big time. It's and look at all these other people who are succeeding in a way that you can't. And you probably have comparable talent, so why don't you hustle more? Or why don't you want something more? I, I heard somebody say one time at a support group, your success is not my failure. Oh. And that went right through me. I was like, God, that is so, that is so right. I remember being a young stand-up comedian and Larry Miller... Um, was working at our club and and you know he was already really established and I so looked up to him and he was a super nice guy and I said what you know what advice do you have for for a young comic like me and he said don't be in a hurry he said think of yourself as a powerful semi truck going 2 miles an hour and that really helped me hmm. and I always keep that image in my mind because I knew of a lot of comics that Suddenly we're on The Tonight Show after only doing stand-up for a year, and, I, and I would find myself getting really jealous of them. But that didn't mean longevity. And no. he's I keep coming back to what he said, and it's just about, you know, most stuff doesn't isn't launched by something overnight. Well, and I've heard this from a couple of people that you also, it's no good to get a break before you're ready for it. Yes. And that can ruin a career. Like going on the Tonight Show when you've done stand-up for five times, you're going to you're gonna lose your cool and people are going to expect a lot more from you than you're ready for. And the same applies to 
any field, like to the art world, to you need to feel confident in what you're making and what you're doing before you can go to like the top mm-hmm. people and, and stand up for yourself and be your own advocate. And I mean, I know this in my head, but that doesn't I experienced know, that. Doesn't silence the voices. When I was, uh, I think I'd been doing stand-up about two or three years, and I worked with uh, Dennis Miller, who, before he, his politics diverged with mine, <laughs> and uh, or maybe he was just hiding them, but uh, he took me under his wing, and he said, I, I want to get you on Letterman, and he gave my name to the person at Letterman, Whoa. and I never followed up on it because I was so afraid uh, that I wouldn't, that I wasn't ready for mm-hmm. it, and... I got to say, in hindsight, I don't think it was a terrible, I don't think it was a terrible idea. You don't regret that you didn't do it? I I don't. I don't. I've never pushed myself where I have, I think, um, failed, if that's probably too strong of a word, was in putting myself out there. But in that, because of, of, of being afraid, like you were saying, of I'm not going to be able to fulfill this thing, I'm, they're going to find out I'm a fraud. Um, I feel like in other instances, doing that, I should have been more um, proactive. But in that instance, I still got to say, I think I listened to my gut. I think I listened to my gut. But uh, once again, I I took the conversation uh, (laughs) and and, and made it (laughs) it about me. But... You know, one of the things I love about doing this podcast is finding how much co- common ground I have with uh, with a guest, and um, I hope I hope that's that comes across <laughs> as that and not me. Well, let's talk about me. Let's talk about me. <laughs> yeah, I think it comes across. Okay. Um. So. Anything else on the living at the at the poverty line? I mean, you'd ride a bike in fucking Toronto in the winter. Toronto's a great biking city. I will defend Toronto's bike ability. I used to have a car when I lived in but, other cities, but it's so expensive to keep it here. And it's like you drive somewhere and then you can't find a place to park anyway. It's ridiculous. freezing right now. I mean, yeah. I... I you don't care. You just bundle up. And what happens when it's sleeting out and uh, and it's slush on the street? Well, there's a couple months I won't necessarily bike. But all season winter biking is actually not very difficult. I used to work in a bike store. So this is like kind of weirdly segueing into my like bike advo- advocacy speeches. But um, without getting into salesperson mode, um, it's not that much colder to bike than it is to walk. And it's way faster. Hey, I'm not advocating walking. <laughs> don't, don't misinterpret my words. I'm but all I'm, for walking, uh, you know, when it's, I mean, I walked for almost an hour today and it's 35 out and it was invigorating, but. That's, uh, that's zero degrees for Canadians. I'm yes. Like, what does 35 mean? Yeah, yeah Fahrenheit, sorry. Oh, it's so weird. Uh, um, <laughs> and it was invigorating, but. It was nice because I didn't have to walk. Yeah. I chose to walk. For sure. And it sounds like you in many ways have to bike mm. i mean i could you just have a great attitude a good about public it. transit system okay. but the first year i lived in toronto i only took public transit and it was a nightmare you're just underground all the time when you bike you can go wherever you want and there's like wind in your hair and it's free exercise and it's just it's the best i think toronto's an amazing cycling city go toronto <laughs> right on i really like it i have a really nice comfortable bike as well my poverty's not reflected in a lot of like visual ways thankfully i mean i 
don't want to look poor. God, that's a terrible thing to say. But anyway, who does? Um, nobody does. I don't think. I don't think the poor are super into looking poor. Um, but I do have a really nice bike that's like ridiculously comfortable and like really low maintenance and like easy to get around in the winter and it does everything I want it to do. You know. You know, uh, I often think we should spend m- more money on our beds and our mattresses. We spend yes. so much time there. Yeah, absolutely. Why not? Have yeah. a good mattress and have a really good bike. It's like I when I moved here, I sold my car to move here. And then I bought like a thousand dollar bike, which is mm. people think that's crazy, but it's my primary mode of transport and it's cost me zero dollars since then. So it's like, that's a discount. And you're walking the global warming walk. Yes, that is true. I am walking the environmental walk and that makes me feel good. The other thing uh, I think uh, that... that Band-Aid is it, in the ocean, but whatever, you know. Hey, if everybody did it. Yeah. Uh, the other thing I, I, I think is a great uh, place to spoil yourself is on a really comfortable, durable pair of shoes. Oh, so true. I bought a pair of Bloodstones when oh, I was they're here. The they're the best, and I just love mm-hmm. walking. I've had them for a year, and I still enjoy putting them on. They're snug. They're the soles are soft. Mm-hmm. They're super durable. I like how they look. Yep. And I've been wearing the same shoes for eight fucking years, and. Yeah, going uh, a couple hundred bucks is not too much to spend on something that lasts you even a whole year. You know, it's not bad. And I'm not talking about, you know, I'm going to get a new pair of shoes every month. If that's your thing, hey, that's fine. But get yourself what I'm telling you, people, (laughs) go get yourselves a nice pair of shoes. Get a nice pair. Get yourself a little something. Take a walk. Uh, Any snapshots from the living in a house with people that weren't your parents? Yeah, that's interesting. Actually, that's that's actually what I was going to say. Um. It was super weird living there, actually. As a, like, I was 16, and then I could hypothetically have moved in with my dad at that time, but I chose not to. It seemed strange to me to want to move in with him when he hadn't really expressed any interest prior in having more to our relationship than we'd had. Like, I saw him on the regular, you know, Thursday nights and overnight one day on the weekend. And my mom, I I knew that my mom would have been completely open to him seeing me as much as he wanted, but he never like took that extra step to do that. And I mean, knowing that was really weird. So then that that had to hurt. I think so. Uh, Absolutely. Absolutely. That hurt. Have you ever gotten into that in therapy? Yep, actually. And I actually got into that with my dad. I lived with him. Well, I lived with his family for grade 11 and grade 12, and then I went to university, still in Saskatoon. And when you say family, you mean the bus station? Yeah, I mean the bus station. I lived at the Greyhound station in Saskatoon, mm-hmm. which if you've, you've ever been there, you it's know nice. what a horror it's show. No, it's pretty sweet. It's all <laughs> it's marble. It's like the John Larroquette show. Remember that yeah, show? I do. And it took place in a bus depot? Yeah. It was exactly like that, but right. seedier. Ugh. Anyway, um... So where am I going? Oh, yes. Uh, I, I went to university and wasn't going to live with this family anymore. And my in the meantime, my dad had remarried and to like a nice lady. His wife is is lovely, actually. And they were like, we really want you to come and stay with us. And I think that she also was interested in experiencing having a kid a bit because she ironically was like my age now, which is, makes me feel insane. But uh she didn't have any kids. She had never been married before. She married my dad, who was quite a bit older than her. And like, I think she like kind of wanted in on a parenting experience. And that worked for me. I didn't have anything against her. I care about her quite a lot. So 
I lived there, but it was so strange because after living for two years in this house with this family, uh, I guess I should back it up. When I lived with that family, they were very kind people. They were lovely friends of the family. And they had a two-year-old son who I was really close with. And like, like I'd come home from school and go on their computer as you do and play Tetris because the internet wasn't a thing yet. Mm. And their two-year-old son would come and sit on my lap while I'd play Tetris and talk to my friends on the phone because you're in high school and you just mm. saw them for eight hours. So immediately you have to go home and call them again. And he'd just watch me play Tetris on the computer and listen to me talk on the phone and sit in my lap, which was so comforting. I think about that. He's now a gay telephone operator. <laughs> Can you imagine? <laughs> oh, I don't. I he's like a grown-up person now, but yeah. I I kind of lost touch with that family, but fondly. No, yeah. no bad vibes. But I, I think that was an important thing for me because other than that, I didn't like get hugged. You know, to like be a teenager and go from this incredibly affectionate relationship to this kind of like friendly, warm but cold. Like they also kept their house really, really cold. So there was this physical manifestation of the warmth that I didn't have anymore from my mom. And I remember the first night sleeping there. I was so fucking cold. I've never been colder in my life. And I just got all my pajamas on, put a sweatsuit on top of that, all the blankets on the bed, just under this weight and just not being able to sleep because I was so cold, which like read into that, whatever you like. Yeah. Yeah, it was very weird. And my mom actually got incredibly afraid that I was depressed at that time. And like she, I remember her thinking that I was going to kill myself, which wasn't even on my mind at all. But I think to some degree, I really numbed out then. And just really, like when I was with my friends, I really came alive. And then when I was at home, I just kind of like was a bit of an automaton and just like did my homework and talk to my friends on the phone and like was a teenager oh yeah almost sounds like a like a boarding house yeah it was it was like a boarding house and actually there was a university student who also lived there so there was this also like other stranger who lived there but he had his own basement suite and i didn't really run into him but these people were friends of your mom yeah Yeah. like a married couple with a young son yeah And, and they were really good people and i think as today i think i really just projected an incredibly together outlook i definitely wouldn't have hinted and i think that something i do is like push it down and numb it out a little bit and then it comes up later like way later like the, the way wha- later the whack-a-mole yeah the old whack-a-mole and i at the time my mom had after i'd lived there for about three months my mom like really called me in a panic and said she thought i was in a in a really depressed state and that i needed to come like she'd moved to lloydminster which is just in the next province over it's a garbage city sorry lloydminster i hate you um i think lloydminster's a terrific guy <laughs> yeah boo everybody always calls it lloyd minister that makes me crazy that's lloyd yeah. the minister yeah. you know i don't know my mom had an ex who was lloyd the minister it's all just a weird co- coincidence but what happened after that is that i had to take a greyhound bus every other weekend to lloydminster and just like spend a week. In case it wasn't depressing enough. Yeah, right. <laughs> just to just to stem the depression, go in this shit town where I didn't have any friends every other weekend. Did you bring a magazine about global warming? Yeah, just to hit the trifecta. Oof. But I was still was like I was had rumbles of that kind of fear, but it wasn't what it is now. At the time, I was still just like homework, teenagerdom, mm-hmm. my so-called life, you know, stuff. 
I'm not, I'm not really convinced that I was as depressed as my mom thought, but I do think that I kind of numbed out and that my mom's perceptive enough to pick up on it. Now, like late, like in the last two years, I had like a real moment of intense sadness around the fact that I didn't fight for a different outcome of that moment. Like, like why didn't I just tell, if I would have said to my mom outright, like, it's not a great time for me to have you leave. You should do your long, your relationship long distance, at least for a year, instead of sending, like having, doing me long distance, you know, mm-hmm. I regret saying doing me, but anyway, I know what you mean. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I never fought for it. I rolled over on that instantly. I was just like, okay, if that's what's happening. But I mean, I think as a teenager, there's like, I was such a kid. I think you don't think that you have that much agency in your own life as a child. And most kids don't. Most no. kids don't. You assume that the adult knows what's best. Yeah. And sometimes I think the adult doesn't really want, and I'm not saying this is the case with your mom, but sometimes the adult wants to exploit the fact that they know their child isn't going to you know, um, speak up for themselves. I can't tell you how many times I've heard somebody say... Um, well, do you want me to break up with this boyfriend who's Oy. who's who's abusive to you? I can't tell you how many times I've heard that. And wow. they put it in so then the kid feels the guilt. They feel like that they've sentenced it, it, it's so and I'm sure in the parents' mind they think they're probably giving that kid an option, but in the back of their back 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 of their mind they know what their child's answer is going to be and they want to just alleviate their guilt. Seriously. Seriously. I mean, I know, I know for a fact that my mom really struggled with her choice to move. Like, I think that even as she was doing it, she's like, I regret this already. I have this strong relationship with my daughter and like, what am I doing? But I know that she really felt that she needed to do it. And that was where I kind of trusted her to like do what's best for her. And it's like, if this is the path that we're on, I need to just see that through. And I, she'd done so much for me and always been there for me so much. I, I don't think that I wanted to be the one to say, like, I don't think this is a good idea or this is too hard on me because I know how deeply she feels that kind of thing and that she really has this deep need to, like, keep me safe and protect me and, like, do things that are appropriate for mothers mm-hmm. to do with daughters. But, like, we have a deep connection and her knowing that she would hurt me would be so devastating for her that it's this weird repeat loop of us kind of protecting each have other. You, have you ever talked about it with her? It's you know, years later ish. I mean, I think she's talked about it with me a lot, but you've just brushed it off or what? No, I mean, I'm willing, I'm absolutely have been willing to hear her experience of it, but I think I, I'm still a bit uncomfortable with talking to her about my feelings about it because I just think it'll hurt her really bad. And I I know that she's capable of handling that, but I'm also uncomfortable with confrontation. So it's a, it's a win-win. You feel like you like to carry other people's pain. Oh yeah. Let's do it. Give me your tired masses yearning to breathe free and I'll just drag them around. (laughs) Yeah, no, I, I definitely have set myself up in many situations in life to like absorb other people's bad feelings. And it's just like, Oh, I'll carry that if it makes you feel better. And you know, you can kind of, pat yourself on the back for being this like you know this florence nightingale thing like my first relationship i was really like oh you're so depressed that's so appealing to me for some reason and then later you find out that you let them down and you let yourself down because you didn't allow them to grow yeah and you didn't grow yeah what a winner it's so hard to know when uh helping somebody has become enabling 
God, so, yeah. It's so hard to it's so Whoa. hard to know that. Totally. But um, but then after that, I I didn't live with that family anymore and moved in with my dad and my stepmom for a couple of years. And well, I, my purpose in moving there was really I went in with eyes really open, and I wanted to engage my relationship with my dad as much as possible. And I wanted to figure it out because I, I think that I, I thought I could fix it. Like I thought that probably the reason that we hadn't been closer in the past is that I just hadn't confronted him about it. Like I think at some level I really believed that was true as if it was my job to fix him and change him or, or make sure that our relationship was viable. Like maybe I just wasn't engaging enough. Come on like that. That's bonkers. But that's kind of where my head was at. And so this one night, he was up late and I was up late because we're both kind of night owls. And I I was like, Dad, I need to ask you, like, how come you, why have you been unable to emotionally engage in my life is what I asked him. Wow. Right? Wow. Isn't that fucked up? And how old like, were you? Like 18. That's amazing. And sad. It's quite sad. But, but I mean. So, uh incredible for an 18 year old I, I i'm a little blown away that i even did that because that, that's that kind of confrontation is terrifying for me but it was did you have your graduation cap on when you asked <laughs> yeah. him? it sounds yeah. very scholarly and then i just walked out yeah <laughs> went into my psych class no it, it just seemed it seemed like that question had been brewing since i was like 10 like i'd just really been like why 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 i'm pretty sure i'm interesting i'm pretty sure i'm a good kid like I never got a lot of negative feedback as a child, which like, I don't know, maybe I was the worst for it, but like I got good grades. I was nice to people. I wasn't horribly bullied and I didn't horribly bully anyone. Like it was just kind of like had this really neutral existence. So like there's nothing to grab onto in terms of like, what did I do wrong? It was an absence of things. It was, it was always an absence of, of me doing anything wrong and him doing anything to engage. Like he was never mean. And I knew I knew that he loved me, so there was a certain like bedrock of of something, but he was just never engaged, and I couldn't figure it out. And so I asked him, and he just couldn't say anything. He just didn't say anything. I feel like he maybe was like up 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 up, like something kind of formal, and and I was kind of crying and like kind of trying to explain myself more and like like maybe talk it out of him because you know that's what i'm able to do but <laughs> she just rolled her eyes yeah <laughs> big time um and like in the end i think we hugged but it really put to bed a huge part of my relationship with him where i was like okay i know what i can't expect anymore that's great though I mean, a painful way to find out there's no juice in the rock. But. <laughs> yeah, but at least I didn't need to bash my head into the rock anymore. Like, yeah. it was very good for me. I'm very glad that I did that. Like, thank you, past self, for having the guts to do that. Because I don't know wow. if I could do it today. But as a result, then, like... It's like you put to bed the idea mm -hmm. that you still clung to about your dad. Yeah. Because we need to, we need to. It's you amazing to. the the images children will create of uh, their parent to survive. Absolutely, and and yeah, it only becoming a adult more has really woken me up to the idea that like he was just a guy. Like your parents are just a guy and a lady 
that made a baby and that baby's you. They're not these hero god deity parents that float above in this mystical land where What's they have now? all the information. Yeah, What's I know. I know, right? Yeah. What? <laughs> Excuse me? Yeah. yeah, I called the presses. I just broke a story wide open. Because we need to think that we're special in the world, that there's something special about our parents. And in yeah. many ways, we're not that special and they're not that special. Yeah. But we can still give and receive love. And yep. that brings out what's special in us, I think. Yep. Absolutely. I'm going to put that on a Hallmark card and then shit on it. <laughs> do you want to do some fears and loves? Sure. Is, is, there, is there anything else that you feel like? Uh... Mm, I mean, the, all that business that I did with my dad was super helpful when he then died because... How, much, how, what, how old were you when he died? It was only like three years ago, I think. I'm sorry. Ish. Thank you. Yeah. It's okay. Uh, like he'd had a couple heart attacks before. Actually, one of them when I lived with him, I was me and my best friend took him to the hospital when he had his first heart attack. He's like, I think I'm feeling weird. Will you? Will Jamie drive me? And I'm like, because I didn't have a driver's license at the time, and we're like, sure. And it's like, oh no, he had a heart attack. Cool. Had quadruple bypass. Crazy. But then, I mean, we really kind of had lost touch over the last tenish years. Like we maybe talk once a year, maybe see each other once a year, or once yeah. every other year, and he dropped dead in the street is how he died he was walking his dog and just had a heart attack and then died wow but i actually kind of wasn't surprised weirdly i talked to him like it was maybe like 10 days after my birthday actually all me and my mom and my dad's birthdays are all in october and so there's kind of like birthday feeling about october and he called me and I was at work at the time I was working in a bike store and I answered the phone at work, which I never do and had a conversation with him that was very pleasant and that ended up being the last one. And I was so glad I took that call because otherwise I wouldn't remember the last time. And I don't like that conversation didn't even stand out, but it happened. You know, there was a positive energy. Yes. Around. Yeah, that's nice. Yeah, absolutely. But like the previous time I'd seen him like the summer before he looked so old. I think he was done. I wasn't mm. that surprised to hear that he died. So it was kind of fine. I think my stepmom got a little devastated because like that's her husband and you know, that's a whole thing. But I'd done a lot of therapy around him in general and that talk that it was just kind of like, in some ways it made our relationship easier because there was no more open door for it to change in a living way. You but, knew what it was. And now whatever my relationship is with him can kind of like change in my own mind. And mm. it, it it's only one-sided now, which is kind of reassuring. Yeah. Yeah. So it was good. Somebody should put a book out of uh, last things, uh, last conversations. Oh. <laughs> just, the, oh. just the last thing that somebody, because you know there's a bunch of, oh. yeah, well, go fuck yourself. 100%. It would be a devastating yeah. book to read. It would be. Devastating. But it would probably also be pretty darkly funny. <laughs> you know? A little sick, a little bit sick. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, somebody somewhere said, I know you are, but what am I? And then hung up. And then dead. Dead. <laughs> uh, let's, do, let's do some fears and loves. Sure. All right. So, fears? Yeah. Um, some of this is going to be repetitive of the podcast now. Okay. Um, dying without having accomplished anything other than mediocre, half-assed trying at things I love while toiling to the death over things I don't care about. <laughs> That's awesome. Mm. Uh, I'm afraid that I'm always going to feel lonely when I'm on the road. And as I hopefully go 
and speak more, um, it's the negative part about feeling lonely on the road is going to erase any excitement that I have about being able to go pursue my passion. Ugh. And get to travel. I feel like the traveling part sounds so exciting. I'm sad that you when you've done stand up for 25 it. years. Ugh, I guess. Yeah. Then blooms off the rose. That's like saying to a painter, "Hey, man, you get to go to the paint store today." <laughs> Woo! But there are certain cities that are. I get excited to come to Toronto and Portland, Seattle, and you know San Francisco. And there's uh, there's a bunch of cities too. I'm sorry, that, it's so cold while you're here. I actually enjoy the novelty of it because it's so much like Groundhog Day in Los Angeles. It, it reminds me of um, Chicago, where I'm originally from. I love so, Chicago. Yeah. I went there for the first time this year and it was magic. It's a fantastic city. It's the best. Yeah. Okay, fear. Um, being busted as an untalented hack by someone I admire. Ooh, that's harsh. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, I am afraid, and I'm not going to say his name, but there is a... Um, high-profile person who agreed to do my podcast and we've done emails back and forth and I'm afraid that he has never really he said he, he you know he would come do the podcast and I'm afraid that he never really intended it and I'm just somebody when he sees my email checking in again he goes oh Jesus <laughs> mm. um confrontation of any kind i'm equally afraid of giving and receiving confrontation so good luck friends coworkers, employers slash the entire world picking either the wrong thing to eat at a restaurant or the wrong restaurant and realizing after i've had that mediocre meal what i should have eaten or where i should have gone that's a i that i resonate with that yeah. it resonates with me i mean ugh, the worst um Someone else getting credit for work I did or a joke I made, um, anything. Uh, Sub-fear is then mentioning it, that it was my joke initially or whatever, and then looking like a needy whiner for not being too cool to care about such meaningless things as credit. That's a great one. That's a great one. Um, having my computer or some other device stolen and then having my identity um, just completely leveraged in the shittiest way possible especially um in ways that affect other people and they don't believe that that's what happened and they think i'm the asshole that's fucked them over worst um uh, that I will never focus on one thing and become exceptional at it, but instead will piss around with a zillion things, only able to be okay at any of them. In this way, I can entirely waste my entire life without making or doing anything I am proud of. Um, that my stomach is just going to become more and more disgusting to look at. Grasshoppers. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and fast or any kind of fast skittering bug in my home. I, my fear of grasshoppers is phobic. Uh, that the ear, that the hair that I pulled off the edge of my ear this morning has been noticeable to everybody, and I haven't been able to see it. And that they've—it's actually made many of them nauseous. And they thought, "Oh, he's now one of those old guys." Oh, this is a good one. Um, that I'll never look any better than I do right now. My face, body, and appearance will only deteriorate. So every time I look in the mirror, it will be I will become increasingly disgusted and disappointed until I die. Jesus, I, I've accepted that as reality. Oh, um, 
So Ugh, being a late bloomer, I had a really long run of looking young and I've peaked now and I'm cresting on the other side. And now it's like, oh, lines and skin feeling different. And mm-hmm. it's just like, it's this forever now. Cool. Ah! Good thing people really see women as people and not sexual objects that need to be beautiful all the time. Oh, wait. <laughs> That's not a thing. <laughs> uh, let's do loves. Okay. Um, food. Fresh pepperoni pizza, roasted Swebok dipped in coffee, which is like a roasted Mennonite bun. It's the best. Butt end of a noodle loaf of bread with lots of butter. The third bike bite of a perfectly medium rare steak with just the right amount of salt. Uh, just pretty much anything. I've got a longer list, but a million foods. The edge of the, a muffin top of a slightly overcooked muffin where it's kind of uh, almost almost getting to crunchy. Mm. Almost getting to crunchy. It's kind of chewy. Kind of crunchy, chewy. I yeah. had one of those on the on the way over here today, and it was so like, oh, I forgot how good this is. It's the best. It's the best. Um, spending time with my best friend after a long absence. When we're hanging out in pajamas and just knowing that we can do catch-up, but we don't have to because we always pick up right where we left off. Uh, watching a cowboy cry. <laughs> oh, that's nice. Yeah, uh, Clint Malarchuk. Uh, he was so open in our in our interview and in the first couple of minutes he came up there because there, there was a woman that spoke in front of him who was also a goalie who also had uh, she had agoraphobia OCD panic disorder and she basically has almost the same internal life as him and he started crying while she was speaking I was sitting next to him and uh, and he was still crying when I when I brought him him up and it was uh and then they both hugged when he was done, and they both just held each other, and they both cried. Mm. It was so beautiful. That's the nicest. Yeah, and I felt guilty for jerking off standing right next to them. <laughs> but the audience loved they it. They did, and I said, this is how I deal with anxiety. Are you going to judge me for my mental illness? Wow, I thought you guys were more open-minded than that. I thought we created a safe space here. <laughs> yeah. uh, Some go, people. Go Makes ahead. me sick. Go ahead. Um, uh, walking into a smell out in the world that takes me instantly back to my childhood. Even if it's not a fond memory or a pleasant smell, I love unwittingly walking into little a little floating time portal. It reminds me that anything can happen at any time and life is not all internally motivated cognitive bullshit. Wow. That's deep. Uh, speaking of... I'm super deep. <laughs> speaking of <laughs> smells, m- one of my favorite smells is when winter is just starting to turn to spring and you can smell the earth. You can smell the the, the moisture yes. beginning to be released from the earth, all the snow that is melted. 100%. And you're a little sad because you can't pond skate anymore, but you know that summer's coming around the corner and the days are getting longer. And, oh, I just love that. I, I smelt that even though it's kind of in, in reverse because we're heading into winter right now. But as I was walking to the event today, I got that smell of, it's cold outside, but you can smell wet earth. And I yeah. was like, I haven't smelled that in years. And it, it, it just brought back so many intense emotions. Because you're in LA, right? Yeah. 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 Not having seasons. I, I would miss that. Like, it's, yeah, everything's just a little freezy thawy right now. There's a first snow day smell as well that oh, I, I just love, love. I love it. And it happened the other day. You get a few as the season starts. Ugh, the best. I, I love when it's really quiet and you can hear the snowflakes land on your hood. Oh, that's the best. 
It's the best. It's too noisy in Toronto for that often, which is too bad. Uh, what else have I got here? Um, mm, this one's a little mushy, but I like it. Um, I like mushy. Um, I this happened recently. I was uh, my boyfriend's name is Dusty, and I was giving him a smooch, not like makey outy, but like a smoochy smooch. And I opened my eyes to notice that he was smiling while we were kissing, Aww. and it was so nice. That's sweet. Yeah, he's a real nice guy. Uh, I love meeting somebody's dog, and they're as happy to see me as if oh, I yeah. were their owner. And they, um, I just love that that just that joy that the that unselfconscious joy that an animal has, and how in the moment they are, and how it draws me into feeling joy and being in the moment and realizing in that instant. Jesus, I take myself and my life too seriously. <laughs> seriously. Yeah. Um, one, I don't have this one written down, but I thought of that on the way here. That I really love color and light. I was biking home from this workshop I was at this afternoon, and the sky was just like this grayish, deep shade of blue, and it was the magic hour. So it's like really orange sunset light hitting buildings and hitting these yellow trees, and just like orange trees plus this deep blue sky. It was just gorgeous. It was just the best free show you can ever see. It's such a great contrast, the, the <sighs> deep blue and orange. That's gorgeous. Uh, that's on the color wheel, isn't it? Big time. Those yeah. are complementary colors. Um, I love... I walked past Toronto City Hall on the way back today, and it's an old stone building that is just, it's so beautiful. And I love cities that have enough history mm-hmm. that they have beautiful stone buildings instead of it all being glass and steel. You're so lucky coming from Chicago for that. I couldn't believe it's the architecture there. I mean, Amazing. I, I think it might be the best city for certainly, you know, post-1860 uh, yeah. architecture. It's stunning. It's stunning. When I came back, Toronto seemed so like measly in comparison. But I mean, there's some good moments downtown here for sure. The city hall's great. There's a couple old bank buildings that are gorgeous. I think with the lakefront and the and the skyline in Chicago, I really don't think there's a better a better combination. No. Maybe San Francisco because it has the Trans America Building, but Chicago's got a half a dozen that are as unique as the Trans America Building. Yeah, it's incredible. We when I went there this year, we took the architecture boat tour, and I've recommended it to everybody. It's the perfect thing to do there, and it just set the stage for the rest of the visit. And we were just like, "Oh, there's that building we learned about. Oh, there's that. Oh, this is this type of architecture. It was so exciting." I just felt like a kid. It was the best. It's amazing, and so much of it, uh, you know, like the themes on this podcast, Uh sprang out of disaster. The Chicago fire, yeah, the big fire, tying it in. Lewis Sullivan and Frank Lloyd Wright happened to be there as a new technology, as steel was becoming popular and lo and behold it became incredibly incredibly Look, we've got this whole city we need to rebuild so let's get the best people to do it yeah wonderful let's do let's do one more each okay um hmm i'm gonna say uh my mom i'm really incredibly lucky to have a parent who can see me it can sometimes be a burden because there's this intense relationship but mostly it's fantastic and i'm really lucky I'm going to follow on your heels and say um, I love that my brother and my wife both know the other side of my mom that most people mm-hmm. don't. And <laughs> so it helps validate the feelings that I have. Yep. Jillian, thank you so much. <laughs> people can go to uh, jerkface.com. 
asshole. No, it's a-hole. a-hole. Jerk face, Jerk face a-hole. a-hole. And it, a-hole is not hyphenated. Not hyphenated. Um, they can also get there from my website, which is just JillianG.com. Jillian with a G and then another G at the end. Yeah. Jillian, meaning your first name. With meaning my first name. Yeah, yeah. G-I-L-L-I-A-N-G.com. That's it. Um, thank you so much. Thank you. I hope you guys enjoyed that uh, that conversation. Uh, I was a little self-conscious about airing it uh, so long after it was recorded. Um, and as those of you that are regular listeners know, a lot of times I hold on to recordings for a long time because, um, you know, I, I'm waiting for the perfect time to air them or maybe the when it was originally recorded, you know, I think to myself, oh, you know, the, is, is that... Uh, dramatic enough for people to find it compelling and one of the things that i forget is it doesn't have to be dramatic for people to to find it compelling in fact most listeners probably uh the the shit that they experienced growing up affected them but it might not be quote-unquote dramatic and so um i'm i'm guilty of a lot of times um just kind of waffling on whether or not to air those and uh, so i had a friend of mine listen to this episode uh, to the interview with Jillian and she's like it's a great episode you should absolutely air it so there you go uh, and also Jerkface A-Hole is no longer a website but uh, the up- other uh, website that she mentioned is is still uh, up let's get into some surveys this is from the struggle in a sentence filled out by Martin Luther's bitch and she writes about her depression I'm the only one standing alone at the world's best party That is so good. Oh, my God. Liam, who is a trans man, shares an awfulsome moment. He writes, I was born in a female body, which means that I am reminded over and over again that I need to be careful because feminine bodies are to be conquered, not respected. One day while I was waiting for the bus at about age 14, a middle-aged man sat down next to me and started talking to me. I began to panic. But my fears subsided after a couple of minutes because he clearly only had one thing on his mind, the engineering and design that went into babies' diapers. He told me to spread the word because the padding in the back of their diapers wasn't as good as it used to be and they could hurt their butt if they fell while learning to walk. (laughs) Cannot make this shit up. Uh, from the struggle in a sentence survey, Fifty Shades of Shitty Gray uh, struggles with depression and sleep paralysis. And that is something that I am not familiar with at all. Uh, and uh, she gives us a snapshot of it. She writes, waking up unable to open my eyes or move at all, but feeling something evil is in the room. When I finally open my eyes, a shadow stands at the end of my bed. It is the most terrifying experience I've ever had. This occurs several times a month. Wow. Wow. Thank you for sharing that and sending you some some love. Fuck, that has to be. I mean, how do you how do you go lay down at night and not have anxiety about possibly experiencing that? Fuck. This is an awful some moment filled out by Tiny Me, and she writes, One day I came home to my brother lazing on the couch and found that he had left the gas burner on in the kitchen. The whole house stunk, and I screamed that he could have killed me or my roommate's dog. I told the story over and over and over until one day it dawned on me that he had been attempting suicide. That is so dark. 
This is from the love survey filled out by Lavender Lovingness. And they write, I love when you tell someone a small detail about you and they remember it or bring it up in a conversation later. I love passing by the same flowers in my neighborhood every day and watching them bloom. I love when you're jamming out to music with someone and you both turn to each other to yell a lyric at the other person. I love borrowing someone else's clothes. I love looking at their Spotify playlists. I love when you're in public and you hear someone else dying of laughter across the street or room, etc. I love when the sunlight catches someone's eyes and you see all the details in their irises. I love book inscriptions when someone gifts you a book. I love forehead kisses. And I love the happy hops my dog does when she's excited. Oh, those are awesome. I love when I give Gracie a treat when she comes in from from outside. And most of the time she doesn't hop up for it, but when she does hop up for for a treat, hop up on her on her back legs, I love when we keep time it perfectly because she doesn't she grabs it so softly that a lot of times it falls out of her mouth but I love when we time it perfectly for that second and a half that she's on her hind legs I'm able to slip it into her mouth and she just softly gums it and holds on to it and then she goes tearing across the house into into the guest room to uh, have herself a little solo party this is from the uh, back in time survey filled out by Patrick and he writes I wish I could go Go back to the night I first met my abusive ex at a dinner party. She'd made cookies for the party, and one guy only ate half of a cookie and threw the other half away because because he was full. She found the cookie in the trash can and had a full-on breakdown in front of everyone because she thought this meant her baking was bad. My immediate instinct was to comfort her as she sobbed on the bathroom floor because I was so used to being my mother's source of comfort when she had a mental breakdown. It was it was that or let my mother try to kill herself again. I wish I could go back to the moment when I first comforted my ex, when I first mistook this attachment as love, and tell him that she isn't my responsibility. I'd tell him that this isn't even her worst self. I tell him to run before the gaslighting starts. Thank you for that. It's amazing how we can kind of become trained to repeat our childhood experiences. This is from the love survey filled out by Needs a Donut Stat. And they write, I love it when I have the exact right amount of quarters to do my laundry. No more, no less. I love it when it's so foggy and rainy in the springtime that most of the world is a flat, glowy silver, and all I can see on my drive along the Hudson River are the bright, flowering trees closest to me. They vibrate with life and energy against the gray sky. It's such a beautiful, subtle one. I love it when I put my big, awkward, accident-prone, anxiety-riddled, shaky body into a swimming pool and become instantly graceful, with all my limbs moving in service of one fluid motion. I must look like a penguin when it hits the water and it goes from waddling to soaring in like two seconds. Point two seconds. Oh, those are awesome. Thank you for those. This is from the Back in Time survey filled out by Sarah. She writes, When I was eight years old, I wish I could go back in time and tell myself, Sarah, your mom is mentally ill. She still loves you. She is bipolar, among other things, and it has nothing to do with you. She gave you bipolar disorder, and your dad gave you debilitating anxiety. You are not fucked up. 
Start caring about yourself. Thank you for that. It's, it's funny, even if we could do that, younger us would probably take it in for about five seconds and then go, whatever. Do we have any ice cream? Uh, Russ from California shares some loves. He, he writes, I love sitting down to a hot plate of Mexican food after an exhausting surf. Oh, do I love that one. I love a plate of enchiladas and the cheese is still bubbling and the plate is hot. I love the sudden sound of rain hitting the window. I don't know why, but it makes me feel like everything will be okay. I feel that same thing too, and I think it's the feeling that we're protected because in that moment, we literally are protected. And he writes, I love an upbeat song with sad lyrics. Me too. Thank you for those. This is from the Struggle in a Sentence survey filled out by... um, person who calls themselves, uh, they don't identify as any particular gender and they identify themselves. Um, the, the name they use is Catholic guilt and about their major depression. There's nothing better than dissociating on the floor and staring at a ceiling fan. And then, uh, they also struggle with self-harm and a snapshot from their life. It's always quote, such a joy, unquote, having to warn any sexual partners about my scars before they even take off my pants. That that has to be anxiety-inducing. Grief Girl shares a back-in-time moment. To the 23-year-old me, I know that you're pregnant and your boyfriend just died, and right now you feel like grief will swallow you whole and that you'll never be a good mom. You're going to bring a beautiful baby boy into this world, and he is going to be half of you and half of the love of your life. He's going to live on forever through this baby. It's a blessing, and you are going to be an amazing mom, and you are going to experience love like you've never known before. Wow, that that is the definition of bittersweet. Wow. Thank you for that one. Rosie, from the Struggle in a Sentence survey, uh, describes being a sex crime victim. This one. Oh, you went through something horrendous with your uncle when you were 13, which is excruciatingly shameful and embarrassing to you? Well, how about you get up in front of a court full of people, including your family, and describe in exact detail which angle you put his cock in your mouth? Wow. I can't I cannot imagine. I cannot imagine. It's so hard for a, a survivor of sexual trauma to tell their story to someone who's safe, let alone people who are judging them, let alone in front of a court of law. I I do not know how people find the the courage to do that. This is from the love survey. Misaki writes, I love when you fix your car and you turn it on and you actually did a good job instead of just making it worse. Oh, that's a great one. And I don't know what that that is like because I've never been able to fix anything with my car. Mia shares a back-in-time moment. I would go back to when I was 18 years old and thought Morrissey was the most talented, eloquent, and poetic artist of all time. 
I'd set myself down and explain that a 50-year-old man who writes lyrics that are so whiny and full of self-pity, depressed teenagers all over the world relate to him more than anyone is not a good role model, and then I might want to reconsider spending all my money on the Smiths slash Morrissey merchandise. On a more serious note, I would try to make myself see that there is no poetic beauty in self-pity and that I don't need my depression and other mental illnesses to define me or make me, quote, profound or interesting. I would tell myself that my self-obsession and my facade of being depressed and cynical do not serve me at all, but they are keeping me from connecting to people and slowly recovering trust in others and myself. P.S. For everyone who loves the Smiths, I still love their music too. Sorry if I offended anyone. Thank you for that one. I love that. Yeah, I imagine a lot of people have really complicated feelings about Morrissey these days. This is a back-in-time moment filled out uh, by an agender person who uh, refers to themselves as the name goes here, right? And they write, um, I'd go back to when I was 13. And I'd tell that kid who never understood why they never fit in anywhere to Google Google the word transgender. If she had just known that it was possible to not be stuck in the box of assigned gender, she probably would have been able to avoid spending her adolescence spiraling into a suicidal pit. She would have had the community she needed to not hate herself for existing. Thank you for that one. Never... Never get tired of reading people getting to experience acceptance, whether it's self-acceptance or acceptance by others around around gender or sexuality. Here lay you share some loves or her lay you. Not really sure how to pronounce that. I love my thirst for knowledge and the fact that something mildly strange or interesting can take my attention by the horns and ride until I'm exhausted and giddy at all the new things I've thought about. That's a great one. I love my friends that accept me for both my problems and my value as a person and as part of a group that props me up and doesn't try to put me down. That is a fucking awesome one. And that's such a hard one to find when you're young, you know, because it's all about putting each other down. And maybe it's less so with with present-day generations of, of kids, but this is a back-in-time moment filled out by Mommy Issues Are Worse Than Daddy Issues. And uh, she writes... Let's see, which part of this did I want to read? Uh, I wish I could go back to yesterday and tell myself not to make the petty comment to my boyfriend and spark a silly fight that ruined a happy afternoon thrifting together. Uh, and uh, this is, this back in time, uh, I don't know why I feel the need to explain this, but this survey added some questions to that uh, that were inspired by the interview with uh, Diane Sherry Case. And... Um, to the question, take anything you want from nature and decide who you want to give it to. And she writes, I would give my mom a hurricane. She passed away almost two years ago from a drug overdose. She struggled with her addiction all my life. There's a lot of abandonment issues she caused, and my brother uh, 
she causes me and my brother and a lot of forgiveness to work on, but the hurricane would be a positive gift. I know this sounds angry, and yes, part of me wants her to feel that destruction that she caused me. But being from South Louisiana, we experienced many hurricanes, and as awful as it sounds, I loved them. And so did she. Being able to brave a storm with her one last time, hiding inside by candlelight, listening to the scary but satisfying sounds happening outside, allowing her to take care of me and protect me one last time. I hold a lot of grief. I'd give her a hurricane out of love and desire to hold her again. Wow, that's so beautiful. Why did you choose this person and this gift? I miss her and I'm still grieving hard. If you had any superpower, what would it be and what would you do with it? I would want the power to communicate with animals. I think it would be amazing to be able to talk to my cat or other animals I come across in my day, in my day-to-day life, or even just know what they're thinking. If you had a superpower, is there something you're afraid might happen? And if so, how would you handle it? I'm afraid all the animals would be angry or sad or in pain, and I would have to share their emotions to the world or deal with it myself. I'm too empathetic to handle it. Pick a positive moment in your day. Use all your senses. What did you see, feel, smell, and think? Today, I bought a new journal and puzzle from the bookstore. They have a bakery in the bookstore, and the smell of these new books and croissants just made me feel so good. I even looked through the children's books and felt a lot of nostalgia there, too. Thank you for that. What a great survey. What a great survey. This is from the love survey filled out by uh, a person who calls himself Born Under Punches. And uh, they write, These are all music-related. Hope you enjoy them, Paul. I love the sound of a big piano chord. Tone clusters ranging several octaves, extensions, and inversions that create a big wall of sound. On that same note, pun intended, I love sitting in front of an acoustic piano with the lid down, playing a big chord while holding the sustain pedal down and feel it shake and rumble. As things get quieter, the timber of that sound now begins to of that sound now begins to dissipate and become sweeter. What mist moving across a lake in a cloudy, foggy afternoon must sound like. I love the sound of a low, fat note in a synthesizer, especially if it's being played by a sawtooth waveform. By the way, I fucking love geeking out on musical loves with people, so I am lapping these up. I love observing waveforms in an oscilloscope and getting a feel for what sound looks like as it moves and evolves over time. I love being able to write down a melody or chord progression that plays in my head. Being able to pull an idea out of my brain and transform it into a tangible result is something that will never cease to astound me. I love the sound of artificial harmonics played on an electric guitar. I love the blurriness and dreaminess of tape echo, an effect which approximates the sound of what it's like for memories to fade and lose its definitions. God, these are amazing. I love the sound of an old song affected by lots of noise and vinyls crackle and pop. Alternatively, the sound of a song warped by wow and flutter. And finally, I love the stillness and the stupid, simple sound of the Roland 808 cowbell. You can never have enough cowbell. That might be my favorite page of loves ever. 
And then finally, these are some loves from uh, Kyle. And he writes, Not sure if this is a love exactly, but sometimes I feel so, so alone. And when I listen to the podcast during those times, I'm always so afraid that you won't end the episode in the typical way. And when you say, just remember, you are not alone, I just want you to know how important that can be to me sometimes. That really touched me, Kyle. And, uh, I, I, you know, as you can imagine, I'm always second-guessing everything I do, you know, inside the podcast and, and outside it. And sometimes I'm like, is this getting redundant me? So it's nice to, to hear somebody say that. I think we all kind of want things that make us feel like we've got a, a home in the world those familiar things like I love there's there's probably about eight or ten guys in my uh, Thursday night support group meeting that have been there from the very beginning for me uh, 17 years and I just love the comfort of looking across the room and seeing them there that stability and just the feeling like this is this is a structure that that protects me and helps me and guides me and helps me laugh and helps me cry and and vice versa so thank you thank you for that Kyle and to anybody who's out there and struggling like I say every week there is help out there and you are so 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 not alone and uh, just never forget that never forget that taking that first scary step to ask for help or to open up to somebody who feels trustworthy it can change your life in ways that you can never, ever imagine. And uh, thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up I know in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up in some weird way.